0: Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts, for as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, um, Sunday, September the 11th, 2022. Well, it's nine eleven, 11 and uh, as I think about that, I... I Think back to a day, what, 21 years ago, I guess it is now, uh, 9-11-2001. I I can remember going to church that morning. We were in Pauly's Island. I went to the church and got my coffee and everything, And, and as I was walking out of the place where I got my coffee, somebody else was just coming in to work, and she greeted me and said, I just heard the strangest thing on the news. As she was coming in, and we all thought it was a joke. We said, oh, have you been listening to like John Boy and Billy? Is it a prank thing that they're doing? And then in a few minutes, somebody else came in and said, I just heard this. And so we went and we gathered. Uh, we had a little television in somebody's office. And it was the same thing that happened, uh, for me at least, uh, when um, when the Challenger exploded in space. And, and we had a little TV when I was at the FDIC, and a tiny little thing. It was, you know, four, five, six inches, whatever it is. And and we watched that, but here at at Pauly's, we're watching this. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home and watch it, uh, not alone necessarily, but I don't need to gather around this tiny little screen and watch this. This seems far more momentous than that. And so we we went home and and watched. And uh, my kids will tell you that that nine eleven was the incident that that sort of. Um, hung over their childhood in the way that those of us who are baby boomers, it would have been the the fear of uh, Russia and and a nuclear um, war with Russia would have. And so it hung over my kids' lives and it um, Will particularly talked about that and that when Osama bin Laden was killed by SEAL Team 6 he was at App State at that time, Appalachian State up in Boone, North Carolina and 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 there was an explosive sort of celebration which seems really odd in retrospect. And, and it seemed odd to me at the time. Couldn't figure it out. Will made the news. He was, I mean, just because he was part of this group. And we still have pictures from that night. And the celebration that went on in Boone that night, they went all they went up to the uh, president of the university, I guess, or the vice chancellor, I don't know which, um, went to his house and kind of celebrated out there. All these kids, I mean, thousands and thousands of kids. And, and I didn't understand at the time, it was only later when we were talking about different things. And Will talked about how nice 9-11 really marked his childhood, and and so what would it what it would have been would have been the sort of the relief that that thing, um, it was kind of like Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, I guess is the way to say it. It, it felt like that that there was a release at some level over that. It, it's just a really odd thing, but I can remember afterwards we went a week or so later. Maybe it was within that first week. There were no planes flying. And we were scheduled to go down to um, Orlando, me and three other people, to go down for a conference to to set up a a Stephen ministry at our church. And so we drove down. And and I can remember still, because there were so many people traveling because there were no planes flying, that I can remember um, all these expressions of patriotism and solidarity at that time as we drove down the interstate and saw this it was just a really unusual time to say the least and 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 i think you know it's it's stuff that i'll never forget and a year afterwards i was asked to speak at a place called low country day school at a at an assembly and the the problem is the assembly included kids who were four and kids who were seniors in high school and i don't know how you address it, an assembly of 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 that age range you know it's just it's not something that that you can do very easily, and, and I don't think I did it very well, but my question was, so when did the war on—when did, when did World War I start? When did World War II start? And I got, like, 1941, of course, 1918. Um, no, you're wrong. It started before that. Our involvement started in the years that you gave me, but, and that's the way it was with terrorism. We had been immune from it until 9-11, and then everything changed, and and so we we got a, a little dose of what many people in the world have had been dealing with for a great long time, and, and I still feel like sort of at wit's end a little bit about how this has changed America, and mostly in ways that are not for the better. We've become a security state in so many ways, and, and loss of privacy and all that. And I and I understand at least what, what would be the overt um reason for that I'm, I'm less good with um, what what's potentially a larger reason for having done that and rolled out that security state in in such short order and, and its impact and influence on American life today and I don't want to get into all that today but I did want to reflect just a little bit on 9/11 9, 9, as we start the morning so um, so today what we're going to look at essentially uh, um, it, it's going to be what is what are the effects of unbelief and then what is, what is the effect of a return to faith and so that we're going to see that in the gospel this ret- what are the effects of the return to faith and how important is that and how important is it to go preach the gospel to a world that's lost? And confused, and and under harassment, and, and feels tension and threat all the time. I mean, there's not been a time since the beginning of the twenty first, the twentieth century. Sorry, there's there's barely been a time when when there wasn't some uh, fear, even in America, hanging out there. But but certainly in Europe and and uh, Russia and China and the and the the East and uh, uh, certainly the the Middle East. That there's constantly this tension, and, and, and how do we cut through that, and how do we sort of separate ourselves from that and focus on the larger picture, you know, the, the eternal picture. So we've got first, in Exodus 32, 7-14, to 14, so Moses has been up on the mountain with God for 40 days, he's been fasting for 40 days, and God's been downloading Torah to him, giving him the law, and, and Jews would argue giving him the entire Torah at that time, as well as the, the oral Torah because that's exactly what Jews believe, is that he got it all there at that time. There were some things he was told to write down and some things he was told not to write down. But but they were explications of the written law. So that's the way Jews believe about the oral Torah, which would be codified in the Talmud uh, and in, in the Mishnah. And so those were not intended to be written down. However, as Judaism, uh, as Jews actually, um, were were scattered across the face of the earth in, in the diaspora, various diaspora, then there, there needed to be, uh, it was thought some um, codification of that oral torah so that there would be continuity of interpretation across Judaism, across the world. So th- that's just how I mean I'm just saying that that's how they view it. So the the Torah has been given to Moses on Sinai, and then the Lord, and we know that they have made the golden calf as they waited for Moses, and he was delayed, and now they panic. We don't know if he's ever coming back. We don't know what happened to him. And so they make this golden calf and proclaim that these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so here, what we get is the end of God's conversation with Moses here. He says to him, go down go down. For your people, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. See, God's distanced himself from the people there. That They've ascribed the work of God to Moses at some level. They've made Moses kind of a demigod, because he is able to do something nobody else can, and they're unwilling to do, in fact, and that is to draw near to God, to be in his presence, they're unwilling to hear directly from the Lord. They want it mediated through Moses. And so now that Moses has not come back and returned from the audience with God on the mountain after these 40 days, and the Jews will say, well, they just miscounted. It wasn't quite 40 days yet. And so that, that's why they panicked, because he didn't come back on the day that they thought he was coming back. So what God's done here, though, is to say, you brought these people out of the land of Egypt. and and indeed. There are places in there where it said exactly that, well, and, but it uses different verbs for brought, for God's work, and, and Moses' work. And so, so he says they, they've turned aside, they've corrupted themselves, they turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Your people who you brought out of Egypt turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So he says, he says, get out of my way, Moses, leave me alone so that I can destroy this people. And when I do, don't worry about it. I'm going to raise up a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord God and said, so in other words, God says, get away from me, leave me alone. And what does Moses do? Well, he he sort of takes the hint and he doesn't leave God alone. The, the, the test here, I believe, is will Moses intercede for the people? Will he love these people enough to intercede for them? Or will he just say, yep, you're right, they're all stiff-necked and I can't stand them. Why don't you start all over again? I believe this is completely a test for Moses on the mountain in the same way that Abraham had to face a test on the mountain with his son. Will you sacrifice his son? your son, if I call you to. And Abraham responded and said, yes, I will. I trust you and I believe in you. And here, what God says is, leave me alone. What does Moses do? He doesn't leave him alone. I believe it is a test to say, will you intercede for this people? Will you love my people, even when they're wayward, even when, when they are ready to throw you under the bus? Are you willing to stand with my people? And Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Well, he just told you. <laughs> They've corrupted themselves and made a golden calf. They turned aside from the way that I commanded. They worshiped this golden calf, and they sacrificed to it, and they ascribed my work to that calf. And <clears throat> he says, So why does your wrath burn hot against your people? I think God's already told you the answer to that. But but what is he, what, what is the key here? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? They're not my people. You said they were my people, but I'm saying they're your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. And so Moses says, no, you said they were my people that I brought up out of Egypt. We got to correct that first. They're not my people. They're your people. And you're the one who brought them out of Egypt. And And these are important things for Moses to say, and for Moses to remember that, that it's not him, and it's not about him. And we're told in another place in Exodus that Moses was more humble than any man on earth. Well, he wrote it. Um, <laughs> but what, what does humility mean? Humility actually means sort of acknowledging and accepting your place in the world, and Moses had a place in the world, and, and his place in the world was to be the leader of God's people and be the shepherd of God's people, and to represent the people before God and God before the people. And, and he did that in a humble way. It's, it's an amazing thing to say that a man who, who was capable of leading about you know, a couple million people was humble, but he was, but, but he stepped into the role that God gave him. He acknowledged that this, this was something God gave him, as opposed to when he tried to take it on himself 40 years before that. No, no, no. You stepped out of line there. He's not going to step out of line again. But he's aligned himself with the people, and he's aligned himself with God, which Abraham Joshua Heschel says that's exactly the role of a prophet. that The role of a prophet is to represent God to the people faithfully and to represent and intercede for the people before god it's not your job to condemn them it's your job to pray for them and intercede for them and that's exactly what he does he fixes the thing that began god's god's statement to him your people who you brought up he says no 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 your people whom you have brought up out of the land of egypt with great power and with a mighty hand why should the egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth so he says, you're, you're going to look bad. You, you got glory among the Egyptians, which is what you said you were going to do by, by drowning them in the Red Sea, that you were going to get glory in the eyes of the Egyptians. Well, you're going to lose that glory that you said was your goal and aim. You're going to lose that if you kill these people out here, because they're going to think, Ah, oh, what kind of God indeed do they have? He says, turn from your burning anger. And relent from this disaster against your people. And and then he makes his plea proper. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. When it says he's spoken of bringing on his people, what what that's trying to tell us is he's relenting of the disaster that he never actually planned to do. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Because Moses interceded properly. He he told the truth. He told the truth that these are your people. You brought them out of Egypt. And then he said, you know, you said you got—he didn't say this, but I'm I'm telling you what he's saying. Why should the Egyptians say—the Egyptians, in whose eyes you got glory by saving your people, how is destroying your people out here in the wilderness going to fit with that glorification process? And then he tells him what he wants. Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. And then what does he do? He makes his—he implores God on the basis of the covenant. On the basis of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. That's the basis. is God's nature. God's covenant. Be faithful. Be faithful to the covenant you've made. Well, do you have to encourage God to be faithful to the covenant he's made? The answer is no. But it's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Because we, we recall the basis of the covenant. And we say that, that the covenant, this is the covenant. Your co- the covenant is in the blood of Jesus. And so I'm recalling the covenant in order that you can recall the covenant. I'm telling you, I understand the basis on which I make any request to you. It's the blood of Jesus. And here, that's exactly what Moses is doing. In the gospel lesson today, so you've got the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now, remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem for for his date with destiny. And so the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. It's an amazing thing because the Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't have allowed them to draw near to here. They would have pushed them away. So, it, And those are the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, look at the scum that he hangs out with. Look, he's willing to receive just anybody. Well, you're not going to like it even more when Paul starts preaching to Gentiles and bringing them into the covenant. I mean, you see already this enmity there's an us versus them mentality. We don't want them to come into the covenant. You know, that, that, that's not a good thing. We, we, those people need to be excluded. And it's for their benefit would probably be the way that they would say it is, it's for their benefit. We, we're going to separate them from the community and we're going to keep them in ignorance. And so, that, no, why is he receiving these people? Why is he eating with them? He is being defiled by eating with these people. We think less of him because of the company that he keeps. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who had no need of repentance. Now, is there anybody who fits that last category that doesn't need to repent? The answer is no. No, there's not. There's not a single person who is 100% righteous. Only one has ever lived, and his name was Jesus. And here, when he says this, he's telling them something that they can't even imagine being true, and he's doing it with a certain kind of an authority. Right? Because what he's saying is that I'm the, the, I'm the man who owns the sheep. I, I'm, the, I'm the owner of the sheep. Well, who's the owner of the sheep? Well, it's the good shepherd. It's God himself. And so when Jesus tells this parable, he's saying, this is who I am, and this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm gathering in the lost sheep. But I actively have to go search for them. They're not just going to come back. I remember seeing a story not too terribly long ago about a sheep, and I think it was in England, but I'm not positive about that even, and, and, and what it was was this sheep was, had gotten away from the other sheep and it had been lost for a couple of years somehow or another. It had foraged for itself and, and, and stayed alive, but the crazy thing was it had hundreds of pounds of wool on him because it hadn't been sheared in all that time, and they brought this thing in and, and had to shear all this wool off of him. But, but it made a great story because this thing that had been lost for so long had been found. I can remember years ago now, I don't, maybe 30-something years ago, we, we had a dog that—we um, we had several dogs at the time, but it was, it was a, a little fox terrier, and his name was Wooster. Well, Wooster ran away. Didn't know where he was. He was gone for a couple of weeks, and I've told this before. I I, I headed to the airport one morning really early in the morning, like 5.30 in the morning, and I I drove away that I didn't normally go, and I looked, and there were some dogs playing in somebody's yard. And I looked, and he was over there. So I hollered at him, opened the door. He came, running, got in the car. I took him home, threw him into bed with Suzanne so she could clean him up. She was delighted, though, to have that filthy dog thrown on top of her and woke woke her up before 6 o'clock in the morning. And why was she delighted about that? Well, because... We wanted our dog back, and we got our dog back, and it was a joyous thing, right? So that, that's a great thing, and that's exactly what Jesus says here, is, is that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So why would that be? Because God doesn't like to lose his stuff. you know. It, 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 it's saying that God's desire is for all to come to saving knowledge but you're keeping them from coming to saving knowledge because you're not making a path for them to repent. You're showing no mercy to them at all. And they know it. They know they're not welcome. And so you stand as representatives of God and you're making them unwelcome. Well, that's the reason I'm here is because you are failing in your task as shepherds. So I have to come and go find these sheep myself because you won't do it. And then that's not even enough, right? Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So she's lost a tenth of her of her assets. And so she sweeps diligently to find this thing. And then when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's telling us what happens in heaven. He's telling us what it looks like when somebody accepts the gospel, when somebody accepts the truth, when somebody accepts him and turns from their wicked ways. Well, there's actually also should be rejoicing on earth, and particularly in the case of tax collectors. I've said this before specifically with respect to to Zacchaeus, Because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which meant there were others under him. And what happens when he repents? When he turns from his wickedness and from stealing and defrauding people, then everybody benefits. Everybody's life is better because Zacchaeus repented. And so there should be rejoicing on earth in the same way because we're unearthing light. The world is changed when a wicked person repents, because their wickedness, well, doesn't stop necessarily 100%, but but everything changes, and we should celebrate that. We should celebrate because heaven celebrates it, and so it's important for us as Christians to recognize this and to, to be fearless in our proclamation of Jesus, because we know What a wonderful result. The outcome of that is, if it's accepted, is true. And if it's rejected, well, that's today. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about the results of what I do. I know what God wants because Jesus just told me what he wants. (laughs) He wants sinners to repent. And so the more that we proclaim, the more likely it is that sinners are going to repent. The more likely it is we'll get persecution too. And and well, that, that is what it is. Paul didn't worry about that. Paul went out and did things that made Jews mad, and he made Gentiles mad, wherever he went. People people got mad at him wherever he went, and it didn't matter which side of the game you were on. In Ephesus, where Timothy is, he had both people mad at him. He had, he had uh, Jews mad at him because they didn't want to see Gentiles brought into the covenant, and they didn't believe they were, by the way. I mean, that's the thing. They rejected Paul's message, and they rejected the fruit of Paul's message. They would say those people are not really in the covenant. They would say that today. But in Ephesus particularly, remember when in Acts, what we see there, whenever Paul goes to Ephesus, what's the problem there? And the problem primarily comes from Gentiles. It's because it's a place where Artemis slash Diana is worshipped. It's a center of that worship in, in that region. And, and Paul has gone, and, and people are turning from that pagan worship to worship of Jesus, so it's the opposite of the Exodus story that we saw today, where people turn from worship of the true and living God to the worship of, of an idol in the golden calves. Here, what's happening is exactly the opposite in Ephesus, and that's where Timothy is, and that's what our passage is. It's 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. So... There, what happened was people turned from the worship of an idol, Artemis, Diana, to the worship of the true and living God in Jesus. And, And what happened was then the silversmiths who made the idols that were sold there got upset because, well, commerce was disrupted. Well, that's not a good enough complaint to get people on your side too much as, hey, I'm losing money. So what you do is you make it about the God himself or herself. And so you say, hey, this is what's going on here, and now you get this crowd of people who have no earthly idea what they're doing or what they're talking about. They're standing in the square for hours chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're defending their God, who is no God at all. Why are they doing that? Well, because Paul has proclaimed the truth, and people have begun accepting the truth. And when they accept the truth, then, then the idol-maker's business suffers, so here, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's ministering in that situation, and he's, he's laying it out. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So I'm thankful to Jesus who rescued me. I was one of those lost sheep. I thought that I had the truth. I thought I had a firm grasp on the truth, and I thought these people were blasphemers. And so I was going after the church. But Jesus gave me strength because he judged me faithful, because even though I was a blasphemer. And then he tells the important thing. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he he found him faithful because Paul tenaciously defended what he believed, so tenaciously that he was willing to persecute and kill members of the church and particularly leaders in the church. But he was sincere, but he was wrong. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Why does Paul say that's the reason I received mercy? Because two things: one. He knew Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're acting ignorantly and in an unbelief. So he knows that Jesus prayed for people exactly like him. And then he saw it himself when Stephen was being stoned, and Stephen prayed the same thing. So Paul knew. And Paul was willing then to suffer the persecution that was going to come along with his change of heart and his new message. He says, I received mercy for very simply because I had acted ignorantly in an unbelief, and, and that's the honest truth. Until, until somebody has an encounter with a living God and the risen Christ, they're honestly acting in ignorance and unbelief. No matter how acrimonious that relationship you might have with somebody who's a, a militant atheist might be, remember this, they're acting ignorantly in an unbelief. They're being held by a demonic deception. So it, the, the more we make that personal, the worse we fight the battle. If, if we understand the reality that it's not flesh and blood that's our problem, it's principalities and powers, then, then we'll fight the right battle. We'll fight the prayerful battle of doing these things. And, and so that's exactly what Jesus runs across, right? People acting ignorantly in a, and in unbelief. That's the reason that he has these battles with the Pharisees. These who would be the teachers of Israel, as he says to Nicodemus, are you really the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And he could say, he, that's what he says to all the Pharisees. You don't know what you think you know. You, you don't and haven't received the Holy Spirit. You got it wrong. You're sincere, but you have it wrong. And the way that you're using that sincere belief is horrible. You're using it to destroy people, not to build people up. So Paul says, I received mercy simply because I had acted on un- ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He knows what he received. He knows that he received mercy. He has received strength. He has received forgiveness. And he's received grace. And, and he was overwhelmed by that he said this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i paul am the foremost paul makes makes it clear that that you know all the things that you might think about moses who killed um, an egyptian all the things you might think about david who had an adulterous relationship with bathsheba and killed her wife kill, killed her husband, (laughs) they weren't that modern, um, in order to hide his crime. So you might think these things about them, but they were people after God's own heart. And God restored them and put them in places of leadership, even though they had sinned grievously against him and against their fellow men. And so Paul says, I am the foremost. In in the same way that Moses can write that he was the most humble man on earth, Paul can write that I was the worst sinner. And he believes it. Paul's not not just using hyperbole here. It's not self-deprecation. No, he recognizes that what he did was the persecution of Christ himself. And why does he know that? Because it's exactly what Jesus said to him. Why do you persecute me? If you're persecuting my body, then you're persecuting me. I'm taking this personally. And Paul knows that everything could have ended right there on the road to Damascus with that theophany, and it didn't. And in fact, not only did his life not end, you will surely die kind of a thing, not only that, Paul's given a ministry, and God in Christ Jesus judged him faithful and appointed him for his service. And he knows that he didn't deserve it. He's the opposite of deserving because he had persecuted Christ himself. And he knows that because the the voice of Jesus from heaven told him exactly that. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. So in, in the same way, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He said, I received mercy for this reason. So, but because, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So he said, I'm an example of being the guy who was so lost and so lost in sin. If he could save me, he could save anybody. And that's the proper humility to take regarding our salvation and, and the way that we walk before the Lord. We should never think too highly of ourselves, we should always remember that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it took a lot of grace to save me. And that was a personal statement. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Don't ever, ever believe anything other than what Paul says here. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I I thought I was righteous before. I thought I was one of those people. Jesus says, it's better that there be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who had no need of repentance. Yeah, he said, I was one of those guys. I thought I didn't have any need of repentance. I was dead wrong. I thought I knew everything. Mm, Nope, I was ignorant. I thought I had belief. I didn't. I believed the wrong thing. And then everything changed. I didn't see myself as lost. Jesus saw me as lost and he saved me. I was the one sheep that he went looking for. Even on the road to Damascus as I was going to persecute the church, he found me there. And we can't ever lose sight of that. We always have to think of ourselves in the same way that Paul does in order that we might always be humble before him and always be willing to proclaim the excellent greatness of Jesus. And that's the reason when Paul gets to the end of that statement, that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. he, He then gives glory and says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our salvation should always cause us to be in that place where Paul is. It should never be something that we would look at and think anything bad about those who don't yet share that faith, because we have to take pity on them in the same way that he took pity on us. And we've got to take the same attitude as Moses and of Jesus and go and pray and intercede for them before the Father because they're acting ignorantly and in unbelief.